Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Composer Jeff Harriet describes his music as sounds that shift and bend at the edges of perception. Much of his work is delicate and unhurried, music that often explores repetition and subtle variations. Recently, Jeff composed music for the film Bone Tomahawk, which was written and directed by S. Craig Zoller and starring Kurt Russell. He currently teaches at the University of Wisconsin at Whitewater, where he coordinates the media arts and game development program and teaches courses in audio, multimedia, music technology, and composition. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So I just want to say for the listeners that uh, we we already had a 20-minute conversation and uh, something had uh, something went bonkers with my recorder and we lost the, the, the first 20 minutes. So we're going to kind of just rehash briefly our, our previous part of the conversation and kind of pick up uh, as we get into it. So let's go back now to... Um, to your background. I always like to start by getting a little bit, bit of background. So take us back as far as you'd like, and let's hear a little bit about your journey. Sure. I, uh, so I grew up uh, playing piano as a kid, um, and I played a little bit of trumpet as well. Along the way, I uh, was much more of a sports kid than I was a musician, although I was always interested and always played. My mom and dad uh, played a bit. My mom was in the choir and liked to play piano uh, in the house. And I guess my grandmother was maybe a music music musician uh, once upon a time as well. Um, and uh, so I was always interested and always stayed with it, but it wasn't my really my first love, um, although I did uh, play in bands in high school um, as well. Uh, that I went when I went to college, I uh, did not think I was going to be a music major. Um, I took composition class because it was a way to get free piano lessons. At least that was my, what my advisor told me, and I wanted to continue to play. Um, I was planning to be an economics major, and uh, although as soon as I signed up for composition, they um, turned out that too many people had found out about this loophole or as a way to get free uh, instrumental lessons, and so they stopped giving them. But I, I just kept taking composition in college uh, because I liked it, um, and eventually became a music major as well. I was at a, a liberal arts college, um, so it wasn't a rigorous major by comparison uh, to even you know, what we offer at Whitewater, for example. But um, it was something I sort of fell into because I just kept doing it and I never really thought of it as being a career. Um, I'm not sure why, but uh, I just never, I never had. Um, and it wasn't until a couple of years after college, in fact, when I first graduated, I went and worked for a division of New York Life doing retirement planning. Mm-hmm. I was a 401k planner. Mm-hmm. And uh, while I was doing that, I knew I didn't particularly like it, but um I just, you know, it was a way to make money and it was, you know, something to do. And I, I kept being, I would write these things on the side. In fact, the first sort of film score I ever wrote was a friend of mine who was a, 
at NYU film school uh, and for his senior project or his whatever, his something he had to turn in, he asked me to write a piece for uh, like a title soundtrack for a short film. And so I wrote something that was like, uh, I had this little keyboard that you could sequence, you know, layer and record on top of itself. And so I wrote some something that was kind of like Sting, some Sting jazzy tune on, on Dream of the Blue Turtles. I can't remember what it's called. But he said he wanted something to set. It was my first instinct, my first understanding of what film music was like because the guy sent me a track and he said, I want it to sound like this. Moon over Bourbon Street. Was that it? Yeah. It uh, <laughs> might be Moon I think it goes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know that one too. I can't think of the name. That one. Whatever that one is. Yeah. And so he said, I want it to sound like this. And so he sent that to me. And I the goal of the film composer is to imitate that thing, but not make it so similar that you can get sued or something. So it was like. So that was my first taste of what film music was supposed to be like, was me writing this little thing for him. I did a bunch of other stuff like that, and then I just you know, went back to music school as a, when I realized that I really needed to be doing that instead of 401k planning. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned uh, in our previous uh, segment that got lost uh, that uh, you were saying one of your professors was saying you know, that you should really stay focused and um, you know, sort of cultivate your artistic voice as a composer but you were interested in all these other things and you know just in the i i knew your concert music specifically the mm-hmm. percussion music sure. and then this new film score that you've just done which we'll talk about shortly but you know as as i'm learning more about your work in the last a couple of weeks uh, in sort of preparation for speaking to you uh you still maintain a, an eclectic interest in you know all kinds of music i mean uh we could talk about any of these things the the bell monks band Mm -hmm. that you have uh, which i've really liked i've just discovered that in the last week and and the Mm -hmm. and we'll talk maybe about the realm builder uh the sort of heavy metal group that you have but it seems like you, you still have this idea of keeping your your hand in all of these eclectic interests and that that seems to serve you well well, you know, it's funny because I think um, one of the strengths that I have, and it, you know, it takes you, you know, it takes people a while. Certainly, it's taken me a while to accept um, my strengths and my weaknesses, and I don't know that I'm ever going to totally accept them. But you know, one of the things that I was that that I have always dealt with is that I'm I'm pretty good at a lot of things, um, and it's you know, in some cases, I think you know, you can say pretty good is like the enemy of the great, in the sense that if you do a lot of things pretty well. Maybe you'll never be great at any of them. But I think at the same time, it's it can be pretty. It can be nice to be good at a lot of things, and it can be nice to enjoy a lot of things. And so I think what's what I've realized is that I want to pursue things that I enjoy with people that I want to work with, and that has kind of fueled my my creative output in the sense that I'm. I'm not sure what I'm necessarily striving towards. I don't have particular goals um, of, you know, like I'm not, I don't know what, you know, what I'm going to do next necessarily other than the projects that I'm working on now. And I'm not hoping any of these projects leads necessarily to any other project. I kind of tried to simplify it at some point and just make it about doing things that I enjoy doing with people that I enjoy, uh, you know, with whom I like, like to work. And, and that's led me in lots of different directions, um, but it's not, it wasn't really a conscious 
thing that I was going to do lots of different things. It just kind of, it just kind of happens. And it's, you know, maybe a little bit of it's hard for me to say no to things that I'm interested in. Um, I've gotten a little bit better at it, but I just like working with people that I like to work with. You know, yeah. the fun is working with people. You know, I think I, I mentioned earlier that I, I'm an athlete and I like to play a lot of sports as a kid. And the position I feel like I'm best at as an athlete is not as the as the star or as the, the goal scorer, but as the facilitator. Um, you know, my best attribute, I think, as a soccer player was always knowing where to be on the field and how to find space. I don't know if you're familiar with soccer at all. There's this guy, Thomas Muller, that everyone thinks is great. He plays for Germany and Bayern Munich, and he's called like the space maker. And he's one of my favorite players because the thing that he's so good at is just getting in the right spot. And it's hard to quantify that, but it's, I feel like that's something that um, collaborators are good at is knowing how they can fit into something. And that's something that I, I just really enjoy. I, I, you know, I enjoy being part of a team. I enjoy working with people. And that's sort of what's fun about about music making. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Actually, I you know it's something that I learned from one of my teachers, Alan Audi, uh, who's mm-hmm. at the Cincinnati Conservatory. Sure. And Al, one of the things that he modeled for us students was the um, exactly kind of what you're talking about: valuing the relationships. You know, and he mm-hmm. he uh, had forged all kinds of really uh, great relationships with many many composers over the years, and mm-hmm. they might not be composers, you know, famous composers, but but there was a relationship there. There was a kind of give and take, um, and a collaboration mm-hmm. that that I think benefited both, you know, the composer mm-hmm. and also the group uh, having having, you know, that connection, that personal connection. So that's something that I've yeah. carried with me through through my work, too, is, is you know, b- cultivating those relationships with other collaborators. I think that's hugely important, actually. Yeah, I just, it's, uh, it's, it's to me, the, 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 you know, the, I love the music, and I love the sound, and I, and I can, you know, be in my own space listening to music. But the, a lot of what makes experiences memorable is you know who who I made the music with or who I was there listening to it with or or you know it's just that that shared experience is is for me a, a, is huge and and that's kind of led me into that's sort of that's how I've made my decisions about what music to be involved in and at first it wasn't really conscious it was sort of just kind of what happened and then at a certain point I realized that I want to just be in be working on music with people that I want to spend time with, you know, it's that simple. Like it's, it's, Hey, what am I, you know, let's work on, let's write this grant together and get this project going so that we can get together three times in the next year to work on it. You know, like that's totally, uh, in fact, that that's this, uh, Trevor Saint is a percussionist. I've worked with a bunch um, of times now the, 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 and he's, I've got this project with him that we're working on. In fact, he's coming here on Saturday for 10 days and uh we're working on a project for uh well it's percussion electronics um with a lot of found instruments and two other composers are writing for us this is my duo skewed and such with trevor and uh two other composers are writing for us and then we're writing a bunch of music ourselves and so the project is i mean real something i'm really excited about and we're making some great music i'm really happy about it but it's also 
wonderful because this will be the third time or fourth time we've gotten together to work on this project in the last year and a half. And uh, that's that's great. That means we're spending a lot of time together. Yeah, yeah. Which I'm excited about. Yeah, well, I, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Trevor Saint because I want to tell this story that, again, got lost earlier. Uh <laughs> is that uh, of the time that I first heard your music and it was at the Percussive Arts Society convention and uh, I couldn't remember what year it was. I had to go look back on your website, but it, it was in 2010 and mm-hmm. I, there was this beautiful piece of yours called Swarms of Light and Metal for Glockenspiel and Electronics and Trevor was the Trevor Saint was the performer. And uh, anyway, I just that that has remained in my memory of one of the highlights of the the focus day for new music at at PASIC over these years. And uh, so I just want to make sure and uh, say that again so that it's public. Uh, I I thought it was just a really terrific piece and a really fabulous performance by Trevor. Trevor, you know, it's it's rare to find, you know, people that you completely groove with. But Trevor... um, and asked me to write that piece for him, and, and uh, I'm thrilled with the way that it came together. Um, and uh, after that, we we wanted to continue to, to make music together. And I think it was about a year later that we there was going to be a house show in Madison, and Trevor was in town. I don't remember why. But there was going to be a house show, um, and there was a uh, a guy was coming through named Mark Snyder, who's a multi instrumentalist performer. And so we put up, put together this show in Madison at someone's house, and Mark was going to play a short set. This guy Gregory Taylor, I think, might have played a set. He's a, he works for Cycling Seventy Four, the company that makes Max. Oh, yeah. And then Trevor and I were gonna were gonna play a set. We didn't have that much to play. We had, you know, he was going to like, I can play Swarms. And I was like, well, why don't you play Swarms? And then we'll just do some Bode Glockenspiel and I'll process your Bode Glockenspiel for a little while. And one of the things that was, that occurred to me as soon as this happened is that both Trevor and I could be perfectly happy listening to Bode Glockenspiel for 30, 40 minutes straight. The audience may not enjoy it if we're like <laughs> listening to Bode Glockenspiel, but Trevor and I could sit there and just bow, glockenspiel, and process it forever. That was the moment I was like, okay, Trevor, the sensibility that he has and the sensibility that I have are very much in sync. Yeah, that's great. And so it's, it's, it's a real treat to work with, uh, to work with him. Yeah, that's, that's terrific. Yeah, it's yeah. always good when you can find those those collaborators like that that are just on the same wavelength and and operate in the mm-hmm. same same frequencies. That's that's great. Well, uh, yeah. I know that uh, some I would suspect that some people are listening to this podcast that might be interested in the film Bone Tomahawk, and we mentioned it earlier. I I'm mm-hmm. a huge huge film fan and had actually been anticipating this film for some time. Uh, well mm-hmm. before I knew that you were connected with it. And anyway, I uh, watched it, got to finally see it recently, and I thought the music was just terrific and uh, very sparse. But in uh, mm-hmm. the whole sound design of the thing is just 
uh, a lot of atmospheric sounds, uh, the sounds that I assume were captured at the moment, uh, almost has its own sort of soundtrack as, it, as the film goes on. But the film, uh, the music comes in about 40 or so minutes into the film when when the the uh, our heroes are riding out uh, of the town. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, yep. I thought it was just terrific. And so congratulations on that. And what, Thank you. I, I saw on your website that Zoller is a friend and frequent collaborator. And so can right. you can you talk a little bit about your connection with him? Sure. So Craig and I have been friends for a very long time, since junior high, uh, where we were debate partners. And we've always had musical uh, connections. In, in high school, it was listening to metal together. Uh, and then... After that, we continued to just always have musical connections in college. He actually went to NYU Film School also. He was the roommate of the guy that I wrote the, the little soundtrack piece for, another friend of mine from high school who was his roommate in college. And I used to go down and visit them there, and, and we'd go see shows together. and um, Just always had musical connections. After, after uh, we both graduated, and I'd, and I'd moved back to, to Miami, which is where I'm from, uh, after I'd moved back to Miami to go back to grad school in music, Craig and I weren't seeing each other as often. And so we started sort of concocting excuses to get together. We had a hiking trip that we that we did. I also lived with him for a summer, just kind of as a, a way to go hang out in New York uh, and do stuff. And then we started making having metal bands together in the late 90s. And we've had... We had a, our first band was called Wombat, and we put out a couple of albums, just sort of self-released um, albums. And we really didn't know what we were doing, but we sort of figured it out as we went along. And this is after I was already back in graduate school, as I said, in music. So I was just kind of on the side. I started doing this stuff, and I remember at first even thinking like, I don't, not, not I wasn't ashamed of it at all, but I remember thinking like, what's my teacher going to think if he finds out that I'm in some metal band? Like, what is going on? And it's funny because now. I think there's much more of an acceptance of people having interest not only in popular music, but in just other forms of music in yeah. a way that was not the case in the late 90s. I was still coming out of a time when people were studying composition and you were, you're getting trained in serial technique. Like I was just coming out of that. And it's not that people aren't doing that now, but it's, it's just a much wider um, swath of things than, than there was at the time. Yeah. Um, and in any case, then Craig and I continue to collaborate and we're in this band, Round Builder. Um, and so when Craig, uh, you know, all along he's been interested in, in movies and he was a cinematographer for a while. Um, and then he focused, started focusing on writing and, uh, for partly because movies, cheap movies in particular, indies were going more digital and he didn't want to work in digital for a variety of reasons. He does now, of course, because everybody does, but he just started focusing on writing and he sold a bunch of scripts, but... Uh, hadn't gotten them made and so he finally just sort of wanted to make one of his own and he's told some of the stories about this on um I've I've heard some interviews where he's talked about this where he finally got this thing going as a way to just make his own movie and needless as you can probably imagine we've had conversations over the years about the role of music in film and Craig's opinion is that filmmakers tend to rely on it too much um, and that it gets in the way of, uh, or that it's used as a crutch to um, tell the story in the place of uh, the, the characters, or in the place of uh, what the sort of what's been earned by uh, by the actors on screen. And so, 
I knew he didn't want a lot of music in this film, and uh, so I, it, it just made a lot of sense for us to collaborate on it um, and to do it together. And we did co-write everything on this in the sense that he really wrote a lot of the themes. He sat down and kind of plunked them out on the on the keyboard. Hmm. And then I would sort of take them and make them work. And then we would spit them back around and he would say, well, you know, a little bit more of this, a little bit less of that, whatever. And so we wrote it together, in fact. We wrote the music for the film in a weekend, I guess almost exactly a year ago. Um, because the movie was shot in fall of 2013, 2013, 14, what year is it? It's 15, 16. It's 16 now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the movie was shot in fall of 2014 and yeah, it was just released. It was, it was shot in October of 2014, I believe. Okay. And okay. edited for a little while. Um, one of the editors was, is actually Fred Raskin. Who's, uh, just edited hateful eight. Uh, it was another one of Craig's roommates in college. Wow. And another guy that I've known for many years. Uh, and he, uh, they worked on that. And then another editor came. In fact, Fred had to leave to go work on the Tarantino movie. So, uh, another guy came in and finished up the editing and they had a rough cut of the movie in late January of last year. And then I flew out there and we quickly wrote the music in, in, I don't know, 40, 45 hours over one weekend. Hmm. And then I came home and recorded it. Where did, where did you record recorded the music? In Madison. In Madison? We recorded music in Madison at a studio in Madison called Audio for the Arts, which is a, a recording studio that focuses on classical and public radio and live sound and jazz and things like that. They do popular music, but not as much. So, hmm. great place. In fact, you mentioned Bell Monks. We played a show at AFA, uh, Audio for the Arts, two weeks ago um, because they do occasionally host shows and um, they're just, they're, I've had former students that have worked for them as, uh, recording engineers or interns and it's a great place. Wow. So, there are many reasons why Bone Tomahawk has been such a wonderful experience, but I was mentioning before, you know, the collaborators is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, you know, I got to work on this film with this friend of mine, Craig, uh, whom I've known forever. Fred was the editor on the film, and I've known Fred for many years. And, and you know, we used to have this thing that we did uh, uh, where we, we called Live in Front of My Refrigerator, which uh, is what, which sounds as ridiculous as it was, which is the three of us, me, Fred, and Craig, would sit on the floor in front of the refrigerator with a DAT recorder, and we would start, one of us would start singing a song, and then as soon as the other two people knew what it was, we would join in and we would try to improvise the song and you know but we wouldn't tell the others what the song was and so we did multiple <laughs> takes of live in front of my refrigerator it was mostly heavy metal stuff uh we'd sing some iron maiden song and then everyone else would jump in so you know i've known these guys for a long time and yeah. so to be involved in this movie with them was just a treat and then 
there are other reasons. It's getting with my, my friends in Madison on the recording and working with AFA on this on the recording session and, and going to the premiere in Austin where my, my parents and my brother live there. Like it's been that kind of experience. It's been like a like it's just been fun. It's yeah. been a ton of fun. Yeah, amazing. Well well, congratulations on, on all the success. I hope the I hope the film finds a wide, wide audience. I thought it was just one, it's one of the best movies that I've seen this year, for sure. And I did see this, the Tarantino film in 70mm when I was in Albuquerque you, on, yeah. on the break. Uh, yeah. But, uh, and it was so cool to see yeah. Kurt Russell in both these westerns, you know, in, in the same year. It was pretty interesting. Right. But um, Yeah, he went right from the one to the other. That's why he had somewhat of a similar Yeah, mustache. a similar look. Yeah, yeah. Well, fascinating that I mean, I know very little about the film industry. I'm a huge film fan, but you know, I don't know the first thing about how a movie is made actually, but uh it's fascinating sure. that the, from what I understand this is his first film and like first uh, not first so film, fun. but I guess on his website it says his uh directorial debut. Um He's written, as I said, he's written some 20 scripts or maybe more than that, and he's had a bunch of them sold and optioned, but this is the first thing he's directed since college, and uh, which is 20 years ago for him. And he's had one other movie that was made, a script that he wrote about some cooks at an insane asylum hmm. uh, called Asylum Blackout. That was made four years ago, maybe. Um, but... You know, Hollywood, I, I, I hear about it only from Craig, although I, t I teach a film music class. Um, it's not exclusively film music. It's on, we also look at video game music and we and TV and some sound design and things like that. It's kind of a smorgasbord class. But film forms the bulk of it. I would say half, at least half the content is film music. And, you know, one of the other reasons why it's been such a neat experience for me is that I've been studying this music for a long time and teaching about it and paying attention to scores in a completely different way for many years. And then to have this experience and to hear Craig say what he thinks he wants the music to do and to talk to the producers and have them say what they want the music to do and to work directly with then the people who I have to send the music to and how we're going to sync it. And, and what they do and how they fit it in, like to get a sense of that side of the process was really valuable for me as a teacher. It was just a neat, a neat opportunity to have, to, you know, to, to really see what, to see how it's put together in a real way. Um, I think it'll make my teaching, you know, better oh, sure. um, going forward too. So it's, a, it's just been an interesting experience all, all the way through. Uh, but Hollywood definitely is strange. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll have to. I'll have to do That's some more. Doubt about that. Yeah, I'll have to do some more research and see. You said there were some interviews with him about the film. I'll I'll have to track some of that stuff down and and find out. I'd just He's be curious to know like how he got this incredible cast for his first you know directorial yeah. debut. I mean, gosh. Uh, Kurt Russell certainly was the reason that the film got made. Uh, you know, Craig. Craig is an extraordinarily driven person. He works exceptionally hard. Um, and like, I can't state overstate that he has these rules that he sets for himself. I mean, to give you one example, he, he often will not let himself have his first cup of coffee until he's edited the previous day's writing. And then he'll write. And he basically lives by himself in an apartment. Um, in New York, but 
he eats out every meal and so he'll get up and write for three or four hours and then he'll have a cup of coffee and then he'll write for several more hours and then he'll exercise and then he'll go get something to eat and then he'll write for several more hours and then he'll get another or maybe we'll have gotten two meals and he writes some more and then he'll watch like two TV shows and go to bed and he does that every day. Um, I remember the first time he was writing a novel or, or, or second I think time he was writing a novel first time after he'd already sold scripts so that he didn't have to have a job as a catering chef anymore. So the first time he was writing a novel where he set his own schedule and he told me the day that he was going to finish it and he could tell me that four months in advance and it was because he knows how many pages he was going to write every day and he knows how many hundreds or how many thousand words the script was going to be and so then it's going to finish the script approximately December 15th or something and that's what he does like he's kind of bonkers I can't that's just sort of how Craig operates. Um, wow. And so he was tired of not getting movies made. And what happened was, because uh, he writes these scripts and he sells them, but then nobody makes the, the movie, uh, even though he gets paid, which he was happy to get paid, but was annoyed not to have any of them turned into anything. You know, as a creative person, sure. you know, I, I have one piece of music that I wrote in 2006 that's never been played because they wrote it for an ensemble that was supposedly being formed and then never actually got formed. And so this, the piece never got performed and it's been just sitting someplace not doing anything. And it still bothers me. And that was 11, you know, nine years ago. This guy's got all these scripts that he wrote that never been turned into movies. It's kind of like, what is this stuff? So he decided he was going to make his own movie. And he'd been watching a bunch of low-budget horror. And he was going to make a really low-budget horror movie that he was just going to pay for out of pocket. And I think his agent and his, and his director, his manager said, I don't know that we want you making some really disgusting, gory, um, you know, $10,000 horror movie that is going to sort of put you in some sort of gutter. Yeah. So they're like, why don't you write a Western and maybe we can get a, you know, something of a budget. And so he wrote a Western, but they targeted it based on on cost. Like, for example, uh, I don't want to give anything away about the movie, but there's a thing that happens partway through where they lose their changes the way that they're moving across the West uh, as they're, after they ride out. And it was based, that actually was based on the fact that they only got so many days uh, with one, I don't know if I'm talking too obliquely, I'm just going to, you can cut this part of it out <laughs> of the thing, but the, it's with the horses. When The reason that the horses die is because hey, they I think we so can just say, I think we can just say spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie, <laughs> stop the podcast <laughs> right now. Go see the movie, but, uh, pause it, and then come back. back. Okay, now now go ahead. <laughs> but the reason that they lose the horses and that Saucy gets killed, or he has to put down Saucy, is because they only had so many days with the with the horses, uh, because they can only afford them for so for so long. And they're like, okay, with this amount of budget, you can have this many days in a town. And then they need, you know, like people, they're out in the west, they're riding across the west. That doesn't cost nearly as much money if they're on foot. Huh. Because they don't have to wrangle horses. Wow! So they put this they put the script together with a budget in mind, and uh, and then they got it to I think it was Peter Sarsgaard who's not in the movie who was a fan, but then it got to Kurt Russell because and he knew it because I think maybe he has the same agent as Sarsgaard or something like that, and and he was on board and he's been on board since it was written, and that was really wow. he was the guy that attracted the cast. Um, and you know, Craig has said as much that really the movie wouldn't have gotten made without Kurt Russell. It is an amazing cast. For, it's an amazing uh, cast. Patrick Wilson. Yeah, Matthew Fox. My one of the most under. I, I mean, Richard Jenkins is like uh, this character actor that 
if you don't recognize yeah. the name, you, you've definitely seen this this actor in tons and tons of things. But he just gives yeah. one of the best performances of the the whole thing. You know, I just Absolutely. anyway, yeah, great. No, it's 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 a real treat, and and uh, yeah, I would say the the thing that I, my brother was excited when I told him about the movie, and he was excited about Richard Jenkins, and the way he knew him was that Richard Jenkins is the stepdad in uh stepbrothers or the dad and stepbrothers that's just like oh you mean dr doback it's like okay okay that was the that was the the tip off so my brother when we went to see the premiere was particularly excited to see dr doback wow well uh that's fascinating story jeff and how cool that you you had this connection with a childhood friend that that then turned into this wonderful creative uh collaboration Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Absolutely. It's, Great. it's been a ton of fun. Well, I want to get back to some of your concert music since that, that was kind of, uh, I mentioned earlier how I first discovered your music and maybe we sure. can talk a little bit about this piece called Swarms of Light and Metal. We mentioned your collaboration with the percussionist Trevor Saint and you have sort of an affinity for percussion. Um, maybe is that through Trevor or were you always kind of interested in in percussion or... You know, I always I, I wanted to play per, per drum set as a kid. Um, in fact, I, I joking I jokingly rib my mother about the fact that she wouldn't let me have a drum set in the house because it was too loud. And she said, "No, I wouldn't." And I said, "Well, yeah, you did. That's okay." Um, <laughs> I did. I would go to friends' houses and I would play their drum sets uh, sometimes, and I always enjoyed percussion. But I had never been a player. In fact. In, in church, when I was a kid, I was, uh, there was a church orchestra, and uh, at some point I was roped in as a percussionist. Um, so I played some orchestral percussion with a church orchestra on a few occasions as well. And I just always liked it. Um, I think I've gravitated to it more over the years because percussionists will do anything. <laughs> right. Um, you know? You, yeah. I've, you know, like a, I had this piece for piano that I really liked that I wrote in 2001 called Velvet Sync. And uh, it's for prepared piano and electronics. And this pianist that I wrote uh, the piece for is a guy named Adolfo Vidal, who's a brilliant guy. He plays a lot of romantic era stuff. He was a friend of mine from, from Miami. And uh, so I wrote this piece for him because he was his friend of mine. And, but I, I wasn't asking him to do, uh, you know, a lot virtuosically. And, and, uh, and he was sort of like, uh, he's Venezuelan. He has this funny accent and to me and, and the way he spoke always made me laugh, but he was always giving me like, you know, why, why, why don't you give me things to do? Like, what is this? Why, why you write this for me? And then he would play these pieces and, and it was always enjoyable, but I got. I was like, okay, he'll do it, but he wasn't excited about it. And then I would write a piece for a percussionist, and they're just they'll do anything. They don't care. It's not like the, I guess the tradition of percussionists is like if you ask a if you ask a, a a pianist and you say, can you put this in the piano? You know, most of them will be like, well, no, we don't do that to the instrument. And if you say to a percussionist, you know, build your own set. Uh, out of all of these instruments, they'll be like, "Okay, great, awesome! Like, I'll go, I'll go make a trip to the hardware store now and buy all this stuff just to play your piece." Right, right. And it's just a completely different mentality than than uh, other performers. And as a class, I just they're you know they're people that who want to collaborate, 
it's just sort of what I found. I obviously they're you know amazing people on any instrument, but it's just percussion has been something where I've just keep finding people that I want to work with, mm-hmm. and so I keep writing pieces for percussionists. Yeah, great. Um, it just kind of worked out that way. Well, in in particular, this piece is for Glockenspiel and electronics. And something that you mention about your own work is that, uh, and I'll I'll say exactly, the sounds that shift and bend at the edges of perception. And you talk about how you you're interested in like subtly shaping a sound that maybe bending the pitch or causing some small little uh, uh, variation in the sound or some small change. Uh, that might even be imperceptible, but but it but it's there. Uh, so can you talk right. a little bit about? I mean, you, maybe you could talk about that sort of approach to and sure. use this piece as an example, or however you want to go. Well, I in around two thousand and three, I was uh, so I was finishing my doctorate at Buffalo, uh, although I was living in Poughkeepsie, and I was writing a piece for clarinetist Guido Arbanelli, uh, who's an Italian. Uh, clarinetist, brilliant guy, uh, and and then I was commissioned by the Mata Festival to write a piece for Michael Lowenstern, the bass clarinetist, um, at the same time. And so those two pieces I tend to think of, about, you know, as sort of important for me understanding how I, I write, um, partially because of this, it was sort of the similar timbre, and I decided I needed to approach these two pieces differently as a way to. Um, just differentiate them for myself. The piece I was writing for Guido was my dissertation piece. So it's a, an 18 minute clarinet and electronics um, solo. And the piece I wrote for my, Michael is uh, that, sorry, the piece I wrote for Guido is called instances um, for clarinet and electronics. And the piece I wrote for Michael is called design. And the, but in both cases I was working with samples of the instruments. So a sample of clarinet and a sample of, uh, bass clarinet. And in both cases, the performers sent me recordings of them playing their instruments, doing mostly playing held notes, um, and then uh, and then also some multiphonics. And they sent me recordings of those sounds, and then I used those sounds to make fixed media parts to go along with the the instru- the, the sounds. And what I what I started realizing is that what was that I could tune the samples by very small amounts. And so I started just sort of doing these experiments on myself where I would tune a sound by four cents or six cents or eight cents or 15 cents. And I started trying to find the line of what I could and could not detect. And, and then I would slowly change it. So for example, in instances at the end of the piece in the last movement, there's this repeated note in the electronics I think it starts out as a D, I don't remember, but as a written D, and this thing just sort of comes in, whoa. It sort of keeps sort of slowly fading in and out. Eventually, I, I tune that note down over about four minutes, maybe, so that that D turns into a B. But it does it while repeating again and again and again and again. And the tuning changes are eight cents, 12 cents each time, so that it is barely lower. 
But the result is that this thing that's essentially a repeated note actually detunes by a minor third. And that was an interesting way to sort of shape this movement while I don't think that the audience member really, I mean, sort of unless someone who has, you know, his perfect pitch is thinking, oh, this note is not the same anymore that it was a minute ago. I just don't think that's the way we're thinking. And so I was trying to take people in directions without them understanding what the heck was happening. And in design, I did it a little differently where I had these little similarly short sounds, but I would sort of try to make them go up or down within a sound themselves. So one sound of whoa would actually be bent. So it would go whoa and it would slightly bend up or slightly bend down. And Michael, the bass clarinetist who was playing along with the track, was making these pure intervals. So mostly fifths, um, lots of pure intervals, fifths and fourths and octaves and things. I was very inspired at the time by Renaissance music. And so I was trying to have these sort of pure intervals, but the intervals that he was tuning to were themselves barely moving. And so I was interested in this idea that it's sort of like, what, you know, what's going on? Um, don't quite understand what's happening at the same time as it sounds very straightforward or, or pure or clean or something like that. That was sort of the, the original impetus. And then I've continued to just change the, you know, the approach a bit over time, but that's that, the root of those ideas has stayed in a lot of my music since. Well, I love the idea in this particular piece, the swarms of light and metal that I was mentioning earlier. Uh, I love the idea in the notes of your piece, you talk about how it reflects on this idea of ecosystems and, and mm-hmm. complex interrelationships. So how do you feel like uh, with the description that you've just given us here, how does mm-hmm. how does this idea play out through through technology? Um, I think the idea in that piece, there were some similar things um, that happened. Some of the things that I was just talking about, in the sense that there's lots of detuning of pitches. Um, but the striking thing to me about the piece and that uh, that idea that you just mentioned is sort of like changing relationships has a different meaning um, and you know an ecosystem if you adjust if you adjust one component of the ecosystem it might um, completely mess with the ecosystem and an example of this right now is, is the Everglades uh, I just saw the news yesterday that they're they're sponsoring another python hunt in uh, the Everglades because Pythons did not used to exist in the Everglades. They're not native to North America, but they've they've taken over the Everglades. They're they don't know how many they are. They estimate there might be eight thousand pythons or more, and so they sponsor these um, periodic python hunts where they'll pay people to go out and find pythons. And they're coming home with these sixteen foot pythons that are hiding in the Everglades, and they don't have any predators except the alligator. So, um, and I think they're saying that lots of raccoons and other things are just disappearing uh, from the Everglades. So it's this, you know, some small thing that's the consequence, this was the consequence of Hurricane uh, Andrew, actually, to some extent, because there was a breeding facility that I guess, like the snakes got out. um, But then also there are local um, people that had them that, that as pets, and then they realized, oh, I can't keep this. 10 foot snake in my house anymore. I'll just go drop it in the Everglades. And then they've just taken over. 
So ecosystems are these interesting places that are in balance, but that can be thrown out of balance. That's kind of what I'm interested in. And so in swarms, the, the analog for that is, the, is in the formal structure. The first movement of the piece, or the first section of the piece, it's not in movements, but the first section of the piece begins with this um, roll that, that eventually turns into a, you know, rolling on a single note, rolling a, 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 a dyad, and then rolling a, a fifth. So I think it's a, a, a rolling a unison, rolling a third, rolling a fifth. So it's, I was trying to have, like, this couldn't be simpler. Um, and I think that gesture is maybe repeated three times or something like that. And then, and there are these electronics that are sort of swarming around in the background. And then in the second and third section of the pieces, other things start to happen. There are these other chordal patterns that come in. Um, and there starts to be some detuning of some of the sounds, etc. And then the last section of the piece, the same gesture from the first section of the pieces returns at a different pitch level. And the uh, electronics have been tuned um, down a little bit uh, from the first section as well. So it's kind of the same version of same as the opening, but something isn't quite right anymore, or it's still, it's just different, I guess. It's not, it's not a restatement of the A, but the electronics and the, and the, and the um, percussion have a slightly different relationship than they had in the first section. And that was sort of what I was, what I was trying to think of when I was like, how do I mirror this idea? And I was like, well, let me take the same material and and use technology to sort of by by adjusting these tunings get to a different place in the last section even though it feels almost the same but somehow isn't quite the same hi everyone sorry to interrupt the show i just wanted to drop in and ask that uh, if you are listening on itunes Please do me a favor, go back and leave a rating or a review. It helps people find and follow the show. Thanks. How, how do you like to work? How do you get started on a piece? How do, you know, where do you find ideas? Like what, how's, what's your process like? Um, usually, well, historically the process was um, I would find a person that I wanted to work with somehow or other and uh we would agree on on a you know a concept for a piece um instrumentation and approximate duration and then i usually would begin with electronic sounds as a way to sort of get myself in the sound world of the instruments that i wanted to work with um i've been doing that a little bit less over time partly because i think sorry excuse me one second Partly because I think my the music has been changing a little bit in the last few years. Um, I used to focus more on on like making. I, I did a lot of things with the instrument and fixed media, and more recently, I think the work has been. So let me back up. It was I did works for instrument and fixed media, and so getting a fixed media part that worked was kind of the original impetus for a lot of music, and that's changed. Um, where now I'm thinking about I want the performer to be just sort of thinking about what they're doing moment to moment, and almost almost improvising as they play, 
Um, so I'm writing in these things that are somewhat specific, but not always. Sometimes they're they're quite open so that performers can sort of find their way through. So finding the right the right level of instruction or detail is is the challenge. So um, like a piece, I'm working on a piece now uh, for uh, actually a decent sized ensemble, Grand Valley State New Music Ensemble. It's part of a um, uh, National Parks Imagine Your Parks program through the National Endowment for the Arts. And the, I just started this piece in the last couple of weeks. And uh, right now I'm just sort of writing down chords. But this is totally different than what I've been doing in the past. I've just been sitting at the piano and plunking out chords and plunking out other chords and trying to see what harmonies might exist. Hmm. Um, but this is different than what I've been doing in the past. So I don't, I don't know what this is going to lead to. <laughs> Yeah. I think that's part of I think part of what I guess I'm getting at is that although I have a process, I usually try not to go back to the same process too often because I I want to do something new because I don't want to I feel like sometimes I would I would end up writing something that's too similar to something in the past, but I mean, it's not, that's not quite right. I'm not saying this correctly, but I don't want to just I don't want to follow the same process every time. Sure. I guess that's the best way to say it. Sure. Um, I've been doing a lot of rambling. No, I don't well, want to follow the same. Well, I don't want to follow the same process every time. Right. Um, there are things that have worked for me, but um, I usually try to start each time authentically, based on the instrumentation and what I perceive the piece is going to be about. So, for example, in this case, I just mentioned this piece for the Grand Valley New Music Ensemble or for Grand Valley State New Music Ensemble, they're playing concerts at national parks uh, with group people who are going to these concerts who will have no idea what's going on and who might just be sitting down for half the concert or who've never heard any concert music in their lives because they're just people who have gone to um, the national park that day. So I'm thinking differently about what this piece is going to sound like. Um, I'm still interested in the same sorts of things I've been interested in, which is to say... Uh, sounds that you know you're not quite sure what's going on and that are changing at the edges of perception and things that make you focus and lean in a little bit and think differently about sound but that's going to have a different result with this ensemble and this environment than it would be at you know PASIC for example yeah. thinking about swarms one as I, I mentioned this in the section that disappeared but one of the things that made that first day so lovely was the fact that the premiere of that concert was in this giant concert hall and here's this tiny piece for glockenspiel in this giant convention center and the setting you know as i said the the moment when trevor is rolling from nothing in this giant space was such a powerful experience and so i'm thinking i'm not sure what how that's going to translate but i'm thinking about you know what's it like to be sitting at the tetons which is the park that i'm inspired supposed to be inspired by for this project you know, what does that, what does that mean for somebody who's never been to a concert experience before? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what I'm trying to think of as a way to get started. Yeah. Great. Well, I'd like to, uh, wrap here. And, uh, the way that I always close these shows is to ask a, a, the last question, very simple one. How does one live and, cr and sustain a creative life? How does one live and sustain a creative life? I, you know, I, 
I guess I can only speak for myself. Well, I know I can only speak for myself. I try to sustain my creative life by working with people that I like to work with on things that I enjoy. Um, I, they have to be challenging. They have to be interesting and surprising, but they also have to be uh, with people that I like to work with. So I feel like the, the most important thing is to find people that you like to be creative with um, that's my, that certainly is my process. I know that there's some people that, you know, they, they go work by themselves in their own space. Um, you know, if you're a painter or something, maybe you're doing your own painting. But for me, the, the, the sustenance is through working with people and then sharing with other people. I don't, I don't think I could do it if it were, if I wrote for myself and performed my own music and nobody else was involved in the process, I don't know that I would feel sustained Interesting. Um, I like I like I like working with people. Um, it's you know I mentioned sports earlier, and sports have meant a lot to me. And I think it, it, I used to be exceptionally competitive, and I'm not competitive now. In fact, a lot of my music is intended to be anti-competitive. Um, but it, I had this realization when I was in uh, graduate school when I was playing tennis with my dad. And we were, um, we just weren't having that much fun. We were complaining too much about like, you know, whether or not, you know, like if I missed the shot, I would be upset about missing the shot instead of, uh, focusing on, on the next point or that my dad had made a good shot that forced me to hit a bad shot. And I remember thinking like, here I am, I'm 23 or 24 years old playing tennis with my dad. And like, that's a great thing, you know, playing tennis with my dad is awesome. Like that was, you know, I, I, I hear now it's, you know, I moved away a couple years later and I've never lived in the same city as him ever again. And so to be outside playing tennis with him, like that was the fun. It wasn't whether or not I won the point. The fun was that I was outside playing tennis with my dad. And I think that has kind of fueled my like the music making for me is about making music with people that I want to make music with yeah. um, as much as it's in about anything. And it's that it's like getting in being in a situation where I enjoy it. Um, that, that makes it uh, valuable. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, you've had some wonderful collaborations and uh, I look forward to, tracking your career and, and checking out all of the, the new stuff that you have coming out and people can find you online. I'll make sure and put links on uh, the posting here in the show notes, uh, some of these pieces sure. and to your website and uh, various projects that you have going. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time. And I'm so sorry about our the first 20 minutes of our conversation that got lost. But uh, thanks for being a sport no and, and sticking around and, and doing the whole show. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to seeing you hopefully in Indianapolis uh, this coming year. I'm planning to go back again. So if you make it, I cool. will, I'll catch you there. I'll be there. I, I'll, I'll hope right. to see you then. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Take care. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter at that John Lane. 
You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.